Sense of place. Uh, and recently, um, on Blueprint, as part of this very series, we spoke to Yanis Varoufakis, uh, who chose as his place uh, an imagined place, a place of a, a long-lost past, but a place that he hoped for in the future, uh, a borderless earth. I think it's fair to say uh, that my guest today will will take us to a place that in, in, in many respects is, is the antithesis of that idea. This place is, is a world of borders and walls, of, of intricately convoluted demarcations, where, where place itself does much to define identity and antagonism. Nathan Thrall uh, is an essayist and author. He's contributor to the London Review of Books, New York Review of Books. His, his latest book is A Day in the Life of Abed Salama, Anatomy of a Tragedy. And he joins us from the place from which he will give us his sense of place, and that place is Jerusalem. Nathan, welcome. Thank you for having me. Nathan, to, to Jerusalem, and as, as we speak, the, the context of this conversation is, is one of, of, of violence and anxiety. It, it, it seems almost a, a strange conversation to be having in this context. Yes, it's, uh, it's a very uh, fraught time in uh, Israel-Palestine, and um, you can feel it in the city itself, in the city of Jerusalem. It's almost... Um, Although things are, are now gaining a sense of normalcy again, it was almost a kind of COVID-like atmosphere in the city. Cafes were half-filled, and particularly in the uh, Palestinian eastern side of the city, uh, it's quite empty uh, even now. And um, there's just a lot of uh, uh, anxiety and, and uh, depression about, uh, about what's happening in Gaza. Tell us more about that; those sorts of divisions within within the, the city of Jerusalem. I mean, it's a tremendously complex place in terms of of history and demography. Yes, um, well, Jerusalem is uh, divided. It's a very divided city. I once wrote that it was the most divided city in the world. We have uh, separate bus lines uh, for uh, Palestinians. We um, have uh, entirely uh, segregated uh, neighborhoods. We have uh, neighborhoods that are uh, encircled by 26-foot-tall gray uh, concrete walls where Palestinians uh, live in uh, little ghettos within the municipal boundary of the city. And uh, we have you know, an, a, an Arab downtown, a Palestinian downtown, and we have a, uh, a Jewish uh, downtown, and um, Jews basically don't go to the Palestinian downtown. It's it's very close by, just a five minute walk from one to the other, and there's very little uh, interaction uh, between the the populations. Although uh, Palestinians are the ones who are uh, cooking and cleaning and uh, staffing the hotels and restaurants. Uh, in West Jerusalem, you have very few Jews going uh, into East Jerusalem and can't even really uh, uh, identify the names of the neighborhoods in East Jerusalem. If you took a, an average uh, uh, Jewish resident of Jerusalem, they wouldn't be able to tell you, um, you know, where Umtuba was or uh, uh, any number of, of neighborhoods within the, the city. 
So it's a it's a place of uh, deep, deep uh, segregation, and um, and it's not immediately apparent um, how that segregation works because um, it's not along a a very clean line. You have uh, Jewish uh, communities on both sides, uh, both the Arab Palestinian east side of the the city and uh, on the Jewish uh, west side of the city. Um, and the ones in the east are, of course, uh, settlements that were created after Israel conquered East Jerusalem in 1967 and annexed not just East Jerusalem, but um, over two dozen, the lands of over two dozen surrounding villages. Um, so it's a very, very uh, complicated uh, geography. It's a hilly uh, place. And only once you try and navigate uh, this place as a Palestinian, do you see all of the tremendous obstacles uh, that exist uh, just to moving from from one place to another? What what took you there? Um, I was I came to Jerusalem um, because I was hired uh, to work as a, a researcher and analyst for a conflict resolution organization called the International Crisis Group. And um, I had done some uh, reporting as a journalist. I, I reported on the Americans training the Palestinian security forces in the West Bank to uh, kind of help Israel maintain its control of the West Bank. And it was a critical ar- article about that American uh, project. And the International Crisis Group uh, offered me a job on the basis of that article, asked me where I'd like to go. And I told them Gaza. And they uh, sent me to Gaza just a few weeks after the article was published. I lived there for a month and a half as a kind of trial period, um, doing a report for the International Crisis Group. And uh, then a few months later, I moved with my family uh, to Jerusalem. That was about 12, 13 years ago. This may sound an odd question, but it, it, it's a thought that struck me since the events of October 7 and the events that that occurred subsequent to that and it is increasingly difficult i think for many people around the world to to take pleasure in their lives in in the in the simultaneous to the events that are taking place within within gaza and that took place uh within israel as well i i wonder if your your experience in jerusalem I mean, is, is it possible to take pleasure in the city it is possible to to take uh, pleasure in the city. I mean, as I say, there is a, a depressed uh, atmosphere, particularly in the east, where um, so many Palestinians are are mourning um, friends and family uh, in Gaza. The the uh, death toll is is um, staggering, and and there's just a sense of um, despair about um, the world about. Um, how everybody is watching this take place and doing nothing to stop it, or, or even worse, uh, facilitating it um, and, and defending it. So, at the same time, you know, their their life uh, continues. Kids are uh, going to to school, and, and and there's traffic, and you know, life has has uh, resumed. And as you said at the, at the beginning, with a sort of an increasing sense of normalization. Yes, uh, I would say more uh, in the western part mm. of the city is is there more of a normal sense of normalcy uh, than in the east? 
I was just uh, yesterday in um, one of these walled uh, ghettos that are within the municipal boundary that are a Palestinian enclave within Jerusalem. And, um, and there, you know, the life was at, at, you know, half, half the volume uh, that it normally is. And the sense of constriction, I don't think many people realize how much uh, the uh, Palestinian freedom of movement has been restricted in the West Bank and East Jerusalem since October 7th. Every Palestinian I know says that this is the most restrictive it's ever been in their uh, lifetime. Uh, These are people who've been alive since before the occupation began. And, um, and in some of these places, you know, it's, it's, uh, you just have two exits that are controlled by the uh, Israeli army or border police. And, um, and those exits uh, can be shut in an instant. And it becomes uh, very, very difficult uh, for anybody to move. You're talking about, you know, where it used to be let's say, 15, 20 minutes to go to Ramallah, a city just north of uh, Jerusalem from some of these Palestinian neighborhoods in East Jerusalem. The day before yesterday, it took me over two hours. And <clears throat> that is that is the daily life for these people. They, they can't plan uh, anything. And it's one of the great you know, themes of, of living here uh, for Palestinians is this feeling that time is stolen from them. They have no sense of control over their lives when they can't plan anything. They don't know if it will take 30 minutes or two hours and 30 minutes um, to meet someone. There's a certain sort of concreteness, a, a, a confrontation in those those physical barriers placed around one's life if one is a, a Palestinian in that place. I, I wonder in, in Jerusalem for Israelis that, constant psychological experience of being so close and yet removed from not only that that constraining reality for for Palestinians within that place but for the reality that's occurring within Gaza yes you know part of the the way in which the infrastructure of this place is designed is to make it feel seamless for uh, the Jewish population and so at the same time that I was near the Kalandia checkpoint in standstill uh, traffic, uh, nearing the end of that uh, two-hour uh, journey, I saw massive construction taking place for a new uh, settler highway that's going to cut beneath, through a tunnel, uh, beneath all of this uh, traffic that we were uh, sitting in. And the way that the roads and the walls uh, are are designed is so that you know I as a as a Jewish uh, person, let's say working in, for the government in West Jerusalem, can travel to my home uh, in a settlement in the West Bank, and it's uh, totally uh, seamless. I'm uh, just going to a suburb, and moreover. The way that the walls and the roads are designed, I barely even notice these Palestinian communities that I'm uh, flying over on these highways that that those communities themselves don't have uh, road access to. It must take an extraordinary effort of, of, of will and confidence, uh, self-assertion 
to to exclude those other possibilities from your your, your knowledge of life. Yes, it's it's actually shocking how easy it is to uh, take it for granted, take the system for granted. Um, once you're here for just a short period of time, mm. you know, I myself live uh, just two miles away from the, uh, you know, principal character in my book, A Day in the Life of Abed Salama, who lives on the other side of the wall in one of these uh, walled enclaves. And I would pass by this uh, community every day. I w- I, my work was in the, in the West Bank, and I would pass it by, and I hardly paid it any mind. It wasn't a place that I uh, entered, and I didn't think about it. It was just, okay, there's a wall here, there's a highway, and there are a bunch of apartment towers, and 130,000 people live there. And I didn't even process, really, that they're residents of the same uh, city who are walled off from their uh, schools and uh, workplaces and places of worship, um, and really, it, it took an uh, an effort for me to go and meet those people and enter that community and to uh, comprehend what was staring me in the in the face, which is that these people share the same uh, city as me and are living a radically uh, different existence because they're Palestinian. You've introduced uh, Abed Salama uh, to, our, to our conversation. You, why did you choose and, uh, to tell his story and then how did you come upon his story in the first place? Well, I was um, working in the West Bank. I was driving with a Palestinian colleague to Hebron, Uh, on the day that a terrible bus accident uh, took place. And we heard about it on the radio. And we heard that there was a school bus filled with kindergartners that had caught fire. Uh, It was struck by a giant semi-trailer, flipped over. And it was more than a half hour before uh, the first Israeli fire truck came on the scene. And six children died and one teacher and the way, the place where this accident took place, just on the other side of the wall, filled with kids who are residents of Jerusalem, um, for me was emblematic of the utter neglect of these people who live uh, in this city, but on the other side of the wall, deliberately walled off. The wall was routed in order to push the maximum number of Palestinians out of the center of the city and make it difficult for them to come into the center of the city. And so I really was, first of all, moved uh, by the story Mm. um, and by the uh, tragedy that these families, that these parents experienced as my worst nightmare. I have three uh, young children. And I think part of uh, my interest in the story was uh, precisely because it was um, the thing that I most feared. And so I went and I and I sought out every parent and teacher and emergency service worker who was connected uh, to the accident. And one of the first people I met actually through a uh, uh, one of his relatives, who was a, a friend of mine, um, distant relative of his, I met Abed, and he welcomed me into his home and was incredibly warm and giving of his time. 
And I really, I spent most of the last few years of my life with him uh, in what became much more than just a process of reporting, but really of um, grieving together and um, his allowing me to see the world uh, through his eyes. In some ways, he's an exceptional young man. In other ways, it's quite exemplary of, of, of broader Palestinian experience. He is indeed, you know, that was part of why I was attracted to um, him as a character and to the idea of centering the book around uh, him as a father who who had a son involved in this uh, accident, a five-year-old son named Milad, is that Abid uh, had gone through, he had lived the history of this place. Um, he had just finished high school when the first intifada broke out. He was uh, recruited into one of the leftist factions of the PLO the, called the Democratic Front for the Liberation of Palestine. His uh, brother-in-law was a local leader of that group and was arrested for his activity. And Abid, at a very young age, became took his place as the local leader of the group. And he himself was then uh, arrested and tortured. And... Um, through his life story, I really felt that I was able to tell the whole Palestinian story of the last half century. And, uh, you know, one of the, the themes of this uh, story and of his life is the depths to which this system of control reaches into it and reaches into his decisions and reaches into whether or not he's able to accompany his wife uh, for the birth of their child in a hospital in Jerusalem, whether he's able to reach his son on the worst day of his of, of his life, uh, trying to find which hospital his son might be located in, and many of those hospitals inaccessible to him because he has the wrong color ID card. And even at one point in his life, the, the decision of whom to marry uh, was dictated by this system of permits and uh, different colored IDs. He he sought out a woman who had a blue ID uh, to marry just in order to keep his job in West Jerusalem, uh, which he was at risk of losing uh, and would not be able to uh, support his family and support himself if he lost it. How does this end? You know, I, I wrote in the acknowledgments to the book that I didn't expect, I don't expect this to end in my lifetime, but I have hope that it can end in the lifetime of my uh, young children. And, um, you know, I think we are just eons away uh, from this ending. And I fear that right now we are at the beginning of an even uh, darker uh, period. And it's going to take tremendous uh, changes in uh, this in Israeli society, in international public opinion, in in the policy of Israel's allies uh, for this to end. Because up until October seventh, this was working very very well for Israel, and there was no need to have to choose between giving equal rights to Palestinians or giving them an independent state. This was the, the mantra of 
U.S. secretaries of state, well, of course, you know, Israel has to choose. At the end of the day, it wants to be a Jewish state, so it's going to have to create independence for Palestinians. But no, in fact, it doesn't have to choose. It didn't have to choose, and it's not choosing. It can continue to have it both ways. It can say, we're a democracy, and we have this so-called temporary occupation that has lasted for more than half a century. And meanwhile, we're going to continue to take over more and more land in East Jerusalem and the West Bank. And for that to change is going to take a real uh, momentous shift, first of all, from Israel's allies and also then as a result of that uh, in Israeli uh, public opinion and, and, and in Israeli basic motivations of a feeling of a need to change the system. To bring it back to to a, a sense of place, I mean, this is the conflict of, between peoples, which is is all about place. That that, that is its essential character. But I, I wonder if external to that that conflict of people, whether there is a sense in which place abides, that it has its own sense of gravity. You know, it does. I mean, that is that is one of the most powerful forces uh, uh, between the Israeli Jewish national movement and the Palestinian national movement is this deep, deep, deep connection uh, to place. And for some people um, who are the, um, you typically referred to as, as the extremists, um, you know, the, the sense of, of place and the connection to place is so strong that, that, that everything else is secondary and they would be willing even to people on the far right in, in Israel would be willing to sacrifice even um, uh, having a, a Jewish uh, majority in order to control all of the, the land. Nathan, thank you. It's, it's these are the weighty, weighty ideas, weighty thoughts, but um, very much appreciate your eloquently shared perspective. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Nathan Thrall, he's an essayist and author, and his latest book is A Day in the Life of Abed Salama, Anatomy of a Tragedy. He'll be at uh, Adelaide Writers Week, um, and we can, uh, if you pop into the blueprint page on the Radio National website, you'll see links to the details of that week and Nathan's appearance. Find more great ABC RN stories that take you beyond the headlines on the ABC Listen app.